tonight the title is Believe. Um, after Justin Bieber's beautiful documentary. No. Um, you know, the more I thought about this, the more I read and thought and tried to write today. I don't think there's anything in the Christian faith, ironically, more nebulous, more um, difficult to wrap our minds around, to get our hands around, to put words to, than this idea of faith. What is faith? Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, uh, Paul and Silas, um, the jail doors are, are, are burst open, their chains fell off. And so the Philippian jailer gets up and he freaks out and he thinks, all right, I let these two guys go. I'm going to die. So he's about to kill himself. But Paul and Silas say, don't hurt yourself. We're still in here. And so the Philippian jailer falls on his face and he says, what must I do to be saved? And one of the most baffling answers to any question in all of the Bible, Paul says to him, Believe. And if you just take it right there at face value, if you're honest, you go, that's great, but what in the world am I supposed to do with that? What must I do to be saved? Believe. Believe and you will be saved is the answer to that question. What's interesting is, as, um, as, I, as I tried to think about this and, and as I thought about what it's talking about, as I, as I looked back at the end of chapter 3, as I read through chapter 4, what Paul actually is trying to say here is that there is nothing better for us to understand the glorious grace of the gospel of justification of being made righteous in God's sight than the fact that it comes through faith. If you really want grace to come home in your life and in your heart, Paul says you need look no further than the fact that it comes through faith. So let's read this together. What Paul says, Romans chapter 4, um, we're skipping a handful of verses. We're skipping verses 9 through 12 if you're reading from your Bible. But if you would, read from, with me in your Bible or in your handout. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trust him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Skipping to verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, 
But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring. Not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it's written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he'd been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised... For our justification. This is the word of God for us tonight. Don't stop believing, right? What does it mean to believe? Paul again, going back to what we looked at last week. That Paul told us last week that there is a righteousness. And it is by faith. Not by works. 3.22, he says it's through faith in Jesus for all who believe. Verse 23, they're justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, who was put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Faith. This is how Paul is saying we begin to understand how God righteouses the unrighteous. How he makes those right who are not right, okay? And in fact, by pointing to Abraham, he's saying, this is how it has always worked, okay? So how better to understand how we're justified by God's grace as a gift than looking at it as how it comes through faith? Paul works this out for us. Three contrasts I have there for you if you're of the note-taking type. Faith and boasting, faith and working, and faith and doubt, okay? Faith and boasting, faith and working, faith and doubt. First things first, faith and boasting. It's funny, uh, I didn't reprint it in your handout, but if you go back to uh, chapter 3, verse 27, the first application that Paul makes in verse 27 of chapter 3 about our being justified through faith as a gift by God's grace is this. He says this, what then becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. What then becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. Then in verse 2 here that we read in chapter 4, he says, Look, if Abraham had been justified by works, if he had been justified by anything that he had done, he would have had something to boast about. Okay, so the very fact that justification for us and for Abraham is through faith excludes boasting. That's the first thing that Paul's mind goes to. Well, what's boasting? 
And usually when we think of boasting or being boastful, we immediately go to kind of the negative connotation. But put it a little bit more simply that, right? Um, most simply put, as, most, as best as I can put it, um, you boast about what you're proud of, right? You boast about what you're proud of, whether it be an achievement, uh, a possession, an ability. You boast about what you're proud of. More than that, you boast about what you think makes you okay. You boast about what you think legitimizes you. You boast about what you think props you up, what something that counts for you or something that makes you count for something. You boast about things that make you feel good about yourself. You boast about what you think. If others knew about you, they would think good about you. And that's why boasting usually has a, um, a negative connotation because it's about us propping ourselves up, right? Now, I think this is why boasting typically has a negative connotation, okay? Because we're saying, this is what is good about me. This is something that legitimizes me. This is something that makes me okay, that makes me count for something. The the best illustration I could think of this, I I really wanted to think of a good one for girls too, but I'm a guy, so I thought of guys. Guys and girls, you've probably been around this, so it, it works. It should work. Why is it when a group of guys is together inevitably somebody's football stories from high school come up. Why, why is this? It always happens. It doesn't have to be football. It can be anything. Um, it, but athletic prowess, you know, hunting story, it was this big, right? Um, guys love saying that. Um, I killed my first buck. Yeah, see, there I am. I'm boasting. I was about to tell you about, yeah, anyway. Um, our boasting, our glory stories, guys, um, they legitimize us, meaning they make us feel legitimate. We boast in those things which make us feel legitimate. And we share that with other people in the hopes, whether consciously or subconsciously, that it will legitimize us to them. That's why when guys are together, they start comparing their glory stories. Here is something about me that is worthwhile. Something interesting, God says through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, he says this. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. I love that. Because what God is basically saying is, you're going to boast in something, but you need to boast in the right thing. We all are boasting in something. It's assuming that we will boast in something because we're all standing on something. We all have something that is propping us up, the way we view ourselves or the way that we're trying to um, cast, uh, make others view us. The default for all of us, though, is to, that something that we stand on to be something in us or something about us. The wise man stands on his own wisdom. The mighty man stands on his might. The rich man stands on his riches. Something in them, something about them. But the thing that God is saying there in Jeremiah is don't stand on these things because none of those things can give you a right standing. You're looking at those things to legitimize you, but none of those things can None of them can give us right standing. 
And so there's like there's there's a handful of inev- inevitable results when we boast uh, in things like this, right? Um, Usually insecurity, because we're constantly going, is this thing legitimate? Does this thing really legitimize me? Right? Beauty, it will fade. Power, somebody's always more powerful. Well, somebody's always got more money than me. And on and on and on. Insecurity. Or we're self-righteous or condescending, right? When there's a group of guys and a handful of them start talking about football, what happens? The football guys have their football thing and everybody else is going, I didn't play football. I'm five foot six. I did play football, but I'm short and I'm little and I wasn't that good. All right. Or we have despair and hopelessness because we say there's nothing about me that's good or okay. But God says, I don't want you to live like that. I want you to live by faith. Now, what is that? What does that mean? Well, we see it in Abraham, verse two. He says if he was justified by something he did, then he's got something to boast about. We are told he believed, right? If it's justified, though, by something he did, he's got something to boast about, to stand on before God. But verse 3, Paul says, but what does the Scripture say? What does the Bible say? He says the Bible, Genesis 15 to be exact, says Abraham believed. And it was credited to him as righteousness. He had faith. Not he obeyed. Not he was faithful. Not that he was brave or had no doubts or knew all the right answers. He believed. It's as simple as that. And that's why it's so vague and why we hate it. Here it is. It's because you see the first key in understanding faith. Especially as he contrasts it with boasting. Is faith is living your life on the basis of what God has done. Instead of anything that you could ever do. It's the glorious release of the gospel is that I don't have to conjure up something to boast about. I do not have to conjure up something that makes me okay. Because faith is about standing upon someone else's standing. Jesus's. I don't have to muster up the courage or the determination or the willpower to measure up because the glorious truth of the gospel of our justification is that Jesus already did. And my standing is his standing. So I don't boast. I'm not a boastful person. I have faith, whatever that is, right? Moving on. The second contrast he immediately goes into, and this is kind of closely tied with the first one, but faith and working. Okay, faith and working. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me. Now to him, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So the one who does not work, but believes. So the opposite of working, Paul is saying, is believing. So you'll know that faith is happening when you stop working. What does this mean? seems like everything that we point to, we have to go, what in the world does that mean? Doesn't James, in his letter, James, the brother of Jesus, doesn't he say faith without works is dead? So there you go. Two Bible writers contradicting themselves. How can we trust the Bible? That's a whole other sermon. Um, Well, James is right. Faith 
is not that I just stop trying. Faith is not that I don't do anything, that I throw my hands up and say, I'm not going to do anything. Let go and let God is not a biblical definition of faith. Okay? And that's not what Paul's saying. Because if you go back to Romans chapter 1, verse 5, one thing that Paul says the gospel brings about is the obedience of faith. The gospel brings about something we do. Interesting. So how is Paul not contradicting himself here? Here it is. Saving faith isn't that we stop working at all. It's that we stop working to be saved. Saving faith is not that we stop working at all. It's that we stop working to be saved. And we trust that that we trust that work to another. Specifically, verse 5, Paul says, we trust it to the one who justifies the ungodly. Here we are again. We looked at this last week. We trust it to the one who righteouses the unrighteous. He makes right those who are not right. And again, we're led to ask, how in the world can this be? Well, in chapter 4, it's all tied up in one word. Um, It first comes up in verse 3, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteous. That word is used some 11 times in this chapter. Counted or credited or, or, or reckoned. Okay? He credits righteousness to us. By faith, we are counted righteous. Righteousness is credited to us. All you accounting majors, you'll love this. And everybody else who hates accounting is going to leave. But here you go. There are only two ways that money can be credited to your account. Either you worked and earned it, or it was given to you. Okay? Either it was your wage, therefore what you earned, what was due to you, or it was a gift. It was unearned. It was undeserved. And Paul's whole point has been that it's a gift and you don't earn it. So even your faith doesn't earn anything. It's reckoned. There's righteousness reckoned to you by faith, through faith. So how does God righteous the unrighteous? He credits righteousness which they don't deserve to their account. And then in verse 7 and 8, he quotes a psalm, right? To say he doesn't credit or count their sin which they do deserve. He doesn't credit that to them. And we're right back to that exchange that we looked at last week. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, He made Him who knew no sin to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God. There's that swap there. That God does something for us. There's not something that we can work for because God's the one that did it. God's that one that did the crediting. He's the one that did the accounting. He's the one that did the counting. So saving faith is two things. It's the cessation of one kind of trust, and it's the commencement of another kind of trust. We stop trusting our work, our ability, and we start trusting God's work on our behalf. A quote for you from Tim Keller in your handout. If we stop trusting in ourselves as justifiers, and we start trusting Him as justifier, the result is credited righteousness. Now here it is. Are we not just beating a dead horse? 
Because I feel like I said all of this for 30 minutes last week. That's what I battled with all day. But we're not beating a dead horse because this is exactly what Paul is still saying. Okay? Why does he want to beat this into our heads? Well, because he wants to beat it into our hearts. But here it is. Empire Strikes Back. Um, It was the second of the original Star Wars. Um, And there's that seminal moment of the whole series. Luke's training um, with Yoda on Dagobah. Nerds just got chills when I said that. That was great. Um, I'm one of you. I am one with you. Um, But as Luke Luke has gone to Dagobah to go with Yoda to to master the Force because he wants to be a Jedi and wants to defeat all the bad people. It's awesome. Um, And so Yoda is trying to explain to him the Force as... um, Luke has tried and failed to lift his fighter, uh, his fighter that is sunk into the swamp out of the swamp by using the force. So Yoda's telling him, right, um, it's all around us. You must feel it around you, this force. You must rely upon it. And so finally, to f- prove his point and to show its power, Yoda, by using the force, lifts Luke's fighter out of the water and sets it on dry ground, and Luke is blown away. And he's walking around it, he's touching it, he's feeling it. Finally, he runs up to Yoda and he goes, I I don't believe it. Remember Yoda's response? And that is why you fail. I don't believe it. And that is why you fail. Why does Paul want to drum this into our heads? And why do I mention Star Wars other than the fact that I'm a nerd? Because Yoda's definition of faith there, if we are honest, is all of our working definition of faith. I don't have enough of it or it's not the right kind, or I just haven't figured it out yet, or I just fell away, and I just got to build it back up again. What does every athlete say after, after every, every, I mean, it's the biggest cliche, um, you know, this team wins the big game or the championship, and they ask the star player, what is it about this team? You get the same answer every time. Man, we just never stop believing what does that even mean? Okay, that's a whole other discussion. But call it possibility thinking. Anything can happen if you just believe. Anything can happen if you just believe. Right? Just have faith and it all work out. Why do good things happen? Because I believed. Why do I fail? I must not have believed. This is why we have to understand Paul and biblical faith. There was this book uh, called Evangelism Explosion years ago, decades ago. Um, but it suggested a, a beginning question if you're ever in a conversation where you think you might be sharing the gospel with someone. And this is, this is how the starter question goes. It would say, if you were to, maybe you've heard it before, if you were to stand before God tonight and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? That's a great conversation starter with somebody you want to share the gospel with just to see, do they have a belief in heaven or God or whatever, Right. But here's the thing about the question, and here's what I think is the sad reality about the question. If you were to stand before God tonight and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? 
The sad reality of that question is that that question scares a lot of you that would say that you have faith. If you, have, if you think you have faith, why would that question scare you? Because you think it depends on you. This is why we don't know how to talk about faith. Because we think it's about us. And we think we don't do it right. And we, don't, we think we don't have enough. And we have no clue where to get it. And we just think everybody else has it figured out and we don't. But here it is, y'all. That's not faith. That's work. And it's not good news. So what Paul is trying to say over and over, and what the Bible, what the New Testament, what the gospel is trying to say over and over and over again, is saving faith has stopped working because saving faith knows that the work is done. That's why it's good news. Faith in working. Final thing here is faith in doubt. Faith and doubt. Now, I name a point faith and doubt. That's a loaded topic, and I do not have the time nor the brain power to unload that topic fully for you tonight. I just want to point you to what Paul actually says. Look at verse, start in verse 18 with me. Read, read, look over verses 18 through 21 with me. Told that Abraham hoped against hope, whatever in the world that means. He didn't weaken in his faith. There was no distrust. There was no wavering. He grew strong in his faith. He was fully convinced, right? Every single one of us that wants faith and wants relationship with a God wants that to be us. We want that to be us. And so we're left going, why didn't Abraham doubt? Why was he unwavering? Why did he not get weak? Why did he grow strong in his faith? And here it is. It's not that there weren't sources for doubt. And it's not that he was blind to those sources of doubt. It says he considered his own body. He realized he was an old man. He was as good as dead. He also considered the barrenness of his wife. His wife had never come close to having a child. So why didn't Abraham doubt? How is it that he had faith? I think it's more simple than we want it to be. And I think it's this. He looked and he listened to what God had said. And he let that define reality for him. He looked and he listened to what God had said. And he let that define reality for him. And what that produced is what Paul says of him in verse 21 being fully convinced. So it's not that he turned off his brain. You know, we could have spent all night talking about our culture and our world's messed up definitions of faith. But most faith is most mocked by saying, well, that's that thing you do when you stop thinking. No, Abraham thought. He looked at himself. He looked at his life. He looked at God. He listened to God and he said, I think I'm going to go with God. He thought about it. It was actually measured reflection on his part. So it was not about the quantity of his faith. It wasn't about how much faith he gemmed up. That's not what Paul says. It wasn't about the quality of his faith. It wasn't that he was faithful. It wasn't that he was so strong. How did he grow strong? Verse 20. He grew strong in his faith 
as he gave glory to God. And we're only scratching the surface by saying this and ending here. But that's it. It's not the quality. It's not the quantity. It's the focus. It's what it is pointing to. Abraham wasn't caught up with how much he believed. He was caught up in the one in whom he believed. The one who raises the dead and creates things out of nothing. That's what he believed. One of my favorite illustrations of faith, illustra- you know, that's the thing about faith. You come up with all these illustrations, like the chair. I'm sure most of y'all heard about the chair. Am I believing it, that I can sit in the chair? How do you know unless I sit in it? All those things, you know, illustrations fall apart here and there. But this is one of my favorite ones, right? Talking about faith as a windshield. You know, a windshield is designed. Its design is to be looked through, Right? The design of a windshield is to be looked through. But inevitably, you know, you get too close to a car or 18-wheeler in front of you and something flies up and it hits your windshield, right? It gets a crack in it or it gets a chip in it. We all love when that happens. I have a nice one going all the way across my minivan right now. It's awesome. Um, but here's the thing. If you stare at the crack or the chip while you're driving, you will wreck your car, right? Why? Because your windshield is not designed to be looked at. It's designed to be looked through. Here's why we have such a hard time with faith. Here's why I have spent all day, like literally 12 hours today, up until right before I drove here, trying to figure out how I would put words to this thing. We all want to know, how do I not weaken in my faith? How do I grow strong in my faith? And those are not bad questions or desires. But here's the thing. Every time the Bible talks about faith, the subject matter is not the faith itself. It is always on the one in whom the faith rests. The Bible never focuses on faith for faith's sake. It focuses on faith because of who faith points us to. What must I do to be saved? The Philippian jailer asks. Paul says without hesitation, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's exactly what he says. Another illustration Three men were fleeing through the woods from a bear who wanted to get them, apparently. Um, That's how the story goes. Don't argue. Um, They come to a frozen river, and crossing this frozen river is their only hope um, to make it out of the woods and away from this bear, right? The first one grew up in these woods. He knows the seasons. He can feel the seasons. He knows the season. He knows the frozen river is safe. He knows what temperature it has been all week. He even knows, because of knowing the temperature all week, he knows exactly how thick the ice is, and he knows that it will hold him, and so he crosses through to the other side. The second one steps up to the ice. He doesn't have a clue. It looks good. It looks thick. It looks like it'll hold me. It just held that guy, so I guess I'll go. He goes through to the other side. The third one gets up to the ice. He throws up his hands and he says, there's no way this ice is going to hold me. 
I just know it won't. I've seen it happen before. Uh, I'm more, I have more weight than these other two guys. I think I see a crack in it from where the other guy just went through. But you know what? I'd rather die there than here with this bear. And so he goes. And he goes through to the other side. Three men with entirely different experiences of faith in the ice. But what is it that saved them? Was it their faith in the ice? Or was it the ice? Again, illustrations fall apart, but I think, at least, this is all that Paul is asking by pointing us back to Abraham. What saved Abraham? Therefore, what saves us? Was it his faith? Or was it the God whom his faith was in? Look at verses 23 through 25. I love the way Paul wraps this up. The words... It was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Because it will also be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It was written for our sake too. So we would know what kind of faith to have. So we could once again and again and again and again and again be pointed to the one that saves. This is why the Bible, you'll ever notice we have such a hard time talking about faith and grasping faith for ourselves. But the Bible always talks about faith as a sure thing. Why? Because it's not about faith, but the object of it. That's why I have a quote from my favorite hymn for you in the handout, Rock of Ages, the original one. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. There's really only one question. Do you believe this? I hope you do. Let's pray. Father, we would pray, we would ask as I think we're about to sing, that you would give us faith. How in the world are you going to do that? By showing us yourself. By showing us your love. By showing us your grace. By showing us your mercy. Over and over and over and over again. Give us faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.